We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. It's so funny because people who don't have a practice always think that you're about, it's about getting something. And I think it was Jack Cornfield who said, people think that they're coming to visit a treasure house. And then after they start practicing, they discover it's a junkyard. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Today I have a novice priest from Upaya Zen Center with me, Genzan Quinnell. He is the coordinator of the prison project there, and he's a longtime practitioner of Zen meditation. He's been, he's been practicing at this stuff since 1990. I met Genzan when I was out at Upaya as a resident this past summer, and I'm really delighted to have him on the show. So Genzan, welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. Thank you so much, Michael. Good to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to hear your voice again. I, uh, I certainly enjoyed, if you could say enjoy, the time that I, that I had at Upaya practicing with you. Well, we certainly enjoyed having you there, and we would say enjoyed. Oh, okay. I mean, I think Zen's kind of a funny thing, you know? It, in some ways, my experience has been you go there not to get something, but actually to leave behind a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. You know, one of my uh, Dharma buddies, Mushin, says that one of the great myths of life is that you go to a Zen center to relax because nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's way more like the military. You know, well, I don't know if it's like the military. I think that, I think that if you would go to a Heji or a training center in Japan, a lot of people go there and they there for a day or two days and they look at it and they really come away with that impression. But if you look at the people that that system produces, they're not very militaristic at all. You know, they're actually very kind and very um, present and embodied and, and helpful people. So it's, it's kind of interesting. One of the things that, that happens all the time at Zen centers is, you know, people come in and they see everybody wearing black or dark blue or dark clothes. 
they see a bunch of people who have shaved heads. Usually they come for a retreat, so it's in noble silence and people aren't talking. And they think, wow, this place is really stern and rigid and uptight. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, one of the chaplains at the prison, I, I went to his church. And it's a really hard scrabble church in, in Albuquerque, you know, and the congregation is really working poor. And you go there and there are three guys outside who introduce themselves by name and shake your hand when, when you walk in the door. And then you walk in and you sit down and six or seven people will walk up to you and say, hi, my name's David. I've not seen you here before. Welcome to our church. Hi, I'm Lewis. I have not seen you come here before. Really glad you came. Hope you come back. Hi, you know, my name's Betsy. You know, I work in the da-da-da. Really happy to see you in our church. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, walk you into can, the Zendo can... and uh, it's total silence. You could be at a Zen center for a week before you had that much conversation. (laughs) No. So people get this impression. And often I have people come up to me at the end of retreats going, oh, I'm so glad you're here because you're so warm and you're so humorous. And I had this impression that Zen was this dark thing. And it was, you know, really nice to find out that wasn't true. And it's sort of scary. But again, it's sort of part of the people bring projections and kind of cultural baggage about what they think Zen is and what they think Zen masters are and that kind of thing. And you get there and you find out, oh, well, that's not really the way things are. And uh, Which really is the practice in a big way, isn't it? Well, really, the practice really teaches us to drop the whole idea that we know what's going on. And Bernie Glassman practices this in the three tenets. He calls it the tenet of not knowing. Mm-hmm. Suzuki Roshi called it beginner's mind. Um, Suzuki Roshi said that in the expert's mind, the um, options are few, but in the beginner's mind, they're endless. Yes, I've, I've heard that quote. I love it. One of, one of my teachers said to me early on, karma is all the baggage that you have that you bring with you. And Zen is how much of that baggage you can put down right now. So it's your ability to come into the situation and drop your preconceived opinions and drop your stereotypes and drop your conditioning and drop your reactivity and drop your I, me, mine, and just look at what's actually going on and seeing what's helpful. And that's really the practice. And, and everything in the practice is to train you to do that. We sit in the zendo and we concentrate on our breath. Mm-hmm. So that we can learn to be in our body, so we can learn to stay in one place at one time, so we can learn to be in a situation without drifting off somewhere. I want to say a little something about that for a moment, because initially when I thought about meditation, I did. I had this preconception based on I don't know what, that it's this peaceful, quiet, really lovely floating experience. And, and you talk about sitting and being in the body, and especially initially as I sat, I felt like I was trying to train a dog, right? I'm sitting there, and in my mind, I'm going, sit, stay, right? I'm just waiting for the bell to go off because, I mean, your knees hurt, your back hurts. I mean, there's all that stuff, but just just to sit and feel the incredible electric current of so much anxiety that was just free-floating. And usually if I could move about and think and do, then I could ignore it. But when I was just sitting and hanging with the breath, it was anything but peaceful. Yeah, you know, it's 
people do have very peaceful states in meditation and people do have almost, you know, bliss experiences in meditation. I've had those as well. I think almost there are so many kind of um, mind streams that we enter into when we sit and when we sit for longer periods of time and it's all kind of cumulative. But it's, it's really interesting because I, you know, when I teach instruction to people, I say there's this idea that you're going to sit zazen and you're going to stop thinking. And a lot of the literature will kind of sort of give you that impression that that's what's going to happen. But it's kind of like sitting in the New Mexico sun at high noon when it's 110 degrees in July and saying, I'm not going to sweat. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to stay focused. And I'm not going to sweat. It's not going to happen. Today, I'm going to be concentrated. I'm going to be an excellent meditator. And I'm not going to sweat. Well, what's going to happen is your skin's going to sweat. And you can sit there and tell yourself it's not going to happen forever, but you will still sweat. And your mind is going to secrete thoughts in exactly the same way that your skin's going to secrete moisture. You know, because that's what your mind is designed to do. Yeah. So if we think of our mind as a blue sky and we think of thoughts as clouds, there's going to be thoughts that just drift by and they're not going to, they're just not going to be hooks for us. Right. And there's days where the sky is blue and cloudless. And there's days where the sky is full of tornado clouds. Exactly. And then, you know, it's like I say to people, it's a lot like swimming. You're a fish and you're swimming in the ocean and you see all these various things floating around. So you see this thing and it's like oatmeal for breakfast and you look at it and you go, that's a worm out of season. I have no interest in that. And it doesn't, you know, oatmeal for breakfast. So what? Go back to counting your breath or oh, I have to write a check to the insurance company. OK. And then you go back to counting your breath or, oh, uh, I have to um, do a new schedule. And you go, okay. And then you go back to counting your breath. But every so often, some shiny lure will come along and it will catch you. And you won't know what it is because it'll be something like really simple. It could be like, I wonder if there's oatmeal for breakfast. The oatmeal to Four Seasons is really good. I could be at the Four Seasons. What the hell am I sitting here doing this for? Da 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 And then you find yourself, as you know, one of my teachers once said to me, doing imaginary things with imaginary people in imaginary places. And that happens to everybody. And then you just go, oh, I'm not in the Zendo anymore. And then you come back and you go back to counting your, counting your breath. Being, being centered, coming back is the practice because everybody goes away. This is, I was going to say, this is one of the things that I would say shifted something for me while I was at Upaya was getting rid of this notion that meditation is that big blue sky and that really it's about the return from being away. Yes. It's really about the return from being away. And and the other thing that's, that's and this goes back to a conversation we were having some time ago, Michael, about um, insight is not enough to get you through, you know, the emotional calamity you're currently in. When you start to sit in your body and, and, and you start, you begin to start feeling things as opposed to getting hung on the narrative. So you start to notice, oh, I'm having an aversive thought. 
about Ted, you know, because Ted's always late. I, was a, I gave him this project like two weeks ago, and there it was the night before I was supposed to leave for Upai on retreat, and it wasn't done yet. And he made me look bad in front of Bob. <laughs> you know, oh, why can't Ted get this thing done? And da 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 And if you can drop the story about Ted and drop the story about what Bob thinks about you and just feel what that reactivity is in your body, and you begin to recognize that, begin to recognize the physical sensation of that, begin to recognize what it feels like when you're about to get triggered like that. Then when you're off the cushion, you can begin to feel that in real life. And that's more important than it is. It goes, oh, I'm getting upregulated. I need to ground myself. I need to take a breath. Maybe I need to step away. And this is the, the work that I teach people in prison is, you know, being able to be in your body and recognize what's happening before you act out on it, before you make the sarcastic remark, before you give the other guy a shove, before whatever. And that's, that's something that you really only get out of practice, is actually being in the body. And what does the thing feel like in the body? Not what the story's about, because the story's always imaginary. We never remember things the way they happen. We remember things the way they might have happened from a certain perspective. Or the way we'd like them to happen. Right. And then after we start, you know, if it becomes an obsessive thought, like you had an argument with somebody or a conflict with somebody about something, you might remember it relatively accurately, according to your point of view, the first time. But by the hundredth time, the person that you're having a conflict with is being much worse than they ever were. And your behavior, of course, is much more exemplary than it ever was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you create this fantasy world where you said that had the exact perfect comeback and you said exactly the right thing right. and da, da 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 And then you break all that down and what do you, what if, what do you end up with? Regardless of what you end up with, the structure is the same. I, me, mine, this this artificial created idea you have of this independent self that's that's you know operating in the world is not getting what it needs wants or it's getting something it doesn't want or whatever and you justify your behavior on on that and it's just it's insane you know and you begin to see that and it begins to fall apart for you and that's when you start when things start to shift in your real life as you start going and would it be I guess safe to say. I don't know about safe to say. Would it? Um, oh, there's there's an interesting phrase. Yeah, it there's. <laughs> it seems to me that if we stay away from the narrative and stay more in touch with the actual feeling, without making a story about it, then something else has an opportunity to occur. Yes, and and the feeling will self liberate. The feeling will self-liberate. Say, say more about that. The feeling will self-liberate. If you, when we get into these like obsessive rounds of of you know storytelling or rumination or whatever you want to call it, where you keep reliving this event over and over and over again, it's really hard. It's kind of like eating sunflower seeds. You know, at a certain point, it's kind of hard to stop. I don't know why the salt or whatever. But you just keep repeating it and you, and you go, oh, okay, I'm not going to think about that anymore. Pretty much if you say to yourself, I'm not going to think about that anymore, it means you're going to think about it some more. Oh, yeah. It's like don't think about a purple elephant. Exactly. 
Exactly. But once you go into the body and you actually go, what am I feeling? You know, then instead of having a rigid story where there's you and somebody else and some paradigm, some conceptual view of the world, some something going on. And then instead of that, you're in a process and you can go, okay, right now, what am I feeling? So, okay, I feel like my breath is like really short. I'm not breathing from my belly. I'm breathing from my chest, you know. I can feel that my shoulders have started to hunch up around my neck. I have this real sense of uh, energy coursing through my body, like I'm getting an adrenaline rush or I'm getting a shot of some kind of, you know, chemical rush from my brain. I feel like really upregulated and tingly. And, and if you sit there with that, that will self-liberate. That feeling of being, you know, your heart going really fast and, and, your, and all this chi flowing through your body and all this overexcitement. Mm-hmm. If you actually sit with that and look at it, that will pass. So instead of trying to resolve it with our thinking brain. You just, you go into the body. What is the body experiencing? Because what the body is experiencing is what's really happening. What's going on in the brain is just in an imaginary play. It doesn't even matter who's in the play. Even if the conflict is somebody that, that, that you've known your whole life, even if you're having you know, a difficult time with your mother who, who's loved you since birth, or your lover, or your husband, or your wife, or your best friend, the person in your brain is not really that person. It's just a construct. Right, who we think that person is. And the self that you, that you feel is so real and so maligned and so put upon and so justified and, and so misunderstood, that's not real either. And the place where this imaginary you know, encounter is taking place, even if it's a room that you've been in a hundred times, it's not really a room. It's just a construct in your mind built out of a memory stream. There's nothing real there. What is real is the heart beating in your chest. What is real is the air going in and out of your lungs. What is real is the chemicals floating through your body. What is real is the sweat in your palms. That's what's really happening. That's where it is. And, you know, as, as we begin to train ourselves to be able to recognize, okay, I'm going through this, call it a process, call it a you know, transformation, call it a klesha, call it an emotional firestorm, whatever. If we can sink into our body and go, oh, this is what's happening, we can, we can take care of ourselves. Because we will go, okay, I'm going to start breathing deeper. I'm going to consciously drop my shoulders. Now, you can't consciously turn off the, the, the chemicals that your brain is you know, generating, or maybe you can, but I certainly don't know how to do that. You know? But as you start to relax your body that chemical uh, mixture will change too. It shifts, yeah. You used a really interesting term a few moments ago, which is upregulate. Yes, that's, well, that one comes from my teacher, Roshi Joan Halifax. Mm-hmm. What does upregulate mean? How would people notice that they're upregulated, and what is the problem? Or should I maybe say the challenge with being upregulated? I think that physically upregulated means that you're in a place of excitement and I would almost call it kind of a place of distress, although it might not always feel like distress. So, for example, 
I, I foolishly have some, you know, strong political convictions and I can get into conversations with people about politics and I can get very excited. And it's actually, for me, a highly enjoyable state, you know, because I have this sense of I understand this issue. I have a really strong vocabulary around this issue. I have the ability to to galvanize and convince people around this issue. I have and this is really true. I have the ability to like really, you know, challenge the other person's point of view. And there's a whole bunch of really wonderful ego food in there. I'm smart. I'm intelligent. I'm articulate. And above all, God damn it, I'm right. <laughs> you know, and that feels really good. It does. It feels really good. It can. Yes, it can. It certainly can. But in that kind of excitement, what I lose is I lose my sense of, of connectedness to the other person. I lose my sense of compassion. I lose my sense of uh, my ability to listen. I lose my ability to like see the world from the other person's point of view. I lose my ability to create deep connection. And really, even though I'm talking a mile a minute, I'm losing my ability to communicate because all I'm doing is, you know, broadcasting from my ego. And that, so that's an example of upregulated. Another example of being upregulated could be in a situation that you find completely distressful. So, you know, you could be in an office situation, for example, and your boss could be yelling at you because this project has gone the wrong way or whatever, whatever is going on. And you begin to feel, okay, diminished, you know, humiliated, embarrassed in front of other people. And, and all that, that could lead up to build up to, you know, a different kind of sense of upregulated. But what it basically means is disconnected from the ability to be present because we're so caught up in our game, whatever that game is whether it's usually some kind of form of, and even the political thing is a form of, you know, self-defense. It's like, oh, I know how the world should be. I know how things should work. Mm -hmm. And these kinds of states, they can give us pleasure as much as they can give us pain. Right. Well, they can give us momentary pleasure. They can give us momentary satisfaction. But by and large, they, they, only, cause, they only cause harm. Because by, by, by the very nature of that state, you are not grounded. Mm -hmm. And you're not connected. And, and, and back to our original part of the conversation, you're not coming from a place of not knowing. You're coming from a place of certainty. And that certainty can only exist on a conceptual level inside your brain and is by definition delusion. And then you take that... And this is what the Buddha taught us, you know, we take this delusion in our brain, whatever it is, I think that think the people who frack, you know, fracking is just wrong and evil. And I'll say whatever I can about that. You create, you create this thing and there may, you may well have some really valid points on fracking. But when you come to the situation where you have all the answers, then you're making this thing, this false imaginary concept in your head into something that's real. And all that ever does is create suffering because it creates separation and separation leads to suffering. And you don't give the other party much room to maneuver, do you? You don't give the party much room to maneuver. You don't give yourself any room to maneuver. You've already given up the whole idea of room and spaciousness. Yeah, gone. That's gone out the window because now you have a point of view and you have this point of view and then you have to defend it. And then... And it always works back into this tricky thing of we end up defending this self that does not really exist. We end up defending these hollow imaginary concepts because we create them into these realities. And yet we live our lives around these as if they are 
the complete pillar that supports everything. Yes. And that's why there's so much pain and suffering in the world. Let's roll back here for a moment to the, uh, to the not knowing piece. This is, mm-hmm. this is something I find, well, it's, it's part of my practice these days. And it's especially part of my practice in, in my medicine practice and my acupuncture practice, which gets a little bit weird sometimes because I was trained to diagnose and treat. And I was trained to know stuff. And people come to me because I'm supposed to know something. And what I've been finding, and, and I suspect some of this comes from, from my practice that I've had for a little bit of time now, that when I think I know what's going on with somebody, I am missing 90% of the material that someone is trying to tell me about their situation so that I actually can connect and help them. Yes, I think that's probably true. It seems to be helpful in, in my clinical life. Um, the, the tricky thing is there's this storyline that says that I'm supposed to know. Right. Well, I think too, Michael, there are situations where you do know. For example, if there was a five-year-old child and they were, you know, climbing up on the stove and there was a pot of boiling water on the stove, mm. I wouldn't even think, you know, I don't think anybody would think. Just in that half nanosecond, you were across the room, you would go, stop that. You would yell at the child. You would probably try to frighten the child. You know, you would do use your voice because your body can't get there fast enough to stop the child from reaching for that pot of boiling water because you do know that. So to be able to, to come to, that's like being aware, and you do know. So you intrinsically know certain things. So if you walked up into somebody who, for example, was in a motorcycle accident and you saw blood pumping out of the side of their head, you would intrinsically know to grab cloth or put your hands or try to stop that flow of blood. Sure, of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So there are these situations where you can recognize things, but by and these are very specific examples, but that sense of certainty comes from our, our intrinsic awareness and, and our compassion manifests itself automatically. That's quite different than our sense of certainty around our opinions, which also manifests itself quite quickly. But it's a completely different kind of manifestation. Yeah. One of the things that I find, again, I'm going to go to my clinical experience just because this truly is a piece of my practice. My practice is a piece of my practice. And, you know, we have lots of theories about medicine. We have a lot of theories about how things work. And, And they're helpful because they train us in a certain way. But the theory of things is not actually what is going on in many cases. And so to hang out in the theory realm, it's like, well, this patient doesn't fit the theory. Well, of course they don't fit the theory. They're a human being, right? Theories are these basic constructs that we use ideally to open our perception with. And it's the opening of perception that's the important part. Yeah, and I also think, I heard someone say the other day at a teaching, the body doesn't know or cognize the way that the brain knows and cognizes. And, you know, it struck me when that was said that I kind of fundamentally disagree with that. 
the more time that I spend practicing with the body and being in the body and grounding myself in the body, the more I realize that on a, on a very fundamental level, my body does know. My body knows things or senses things that my mind does not know. And I can give you a, an example of that that's really simple. When I became the temple coordinator at Upaya, one of you know my tasks is to make sure that everybody's in the zendo in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know? And when I first got that task, I found it really challenging because I'd have to, A, remember that I was supposed to check that everybody was in the zendo in the morning and give up this idea that, oh, I'm going to go to Zendo and sit down and do Zazen for myself. Flip my, my perspective and go, oh, I'm here to provide a service. I'm here to serve the community first. That was one thing. And the second thing is, I'm 57 years old, and it's dark in the Zendo in the morning, and looking around and trying to see who was there and who was not there, and squinting and counting and all of that. And I just found it quite challenging to know. And then the head monk would turn to me and go, so-and-so is not here. You know, and, and I would go, how didn't I see that? Go off and find so-and-so. And fast forward, I guess you could say that two years later or whatever, year later, year and a half later, I can now walk into the Zendo and I can sort of sense who's not there. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, oh, somebody's missing, but I can kind of sense which person is missing. And it's not by looking at a CD chart or anything else. It's just that my, my sense of my body in the Zendo is wider than it used to be. I can begin to see, oh, okay. And it's not like I'm looking around or or anything. Because before I used to look around all the time. I was really conceptually trying to do it with my my brain. And now I kind of do it with my body. And we talk about this in common parlance. We talk about gut instinct. Mm -hmm. I just had a gut instinct that this was a better thing to do than that. Or I made a gut decision. My pros and cons are both the same, but my gut told me this. And it's interesting because when we talk about gut, we're really talking about our hara, you know, which is really where we're putting the focus of our attention during our meditation. And it's like that intuition that's that's in your body. It's that sensing instead of thinking. It's, it's a name for intelligence. And the body does cognize on that level. And so it's very interesting. We drop out of our head and drop into our body and feel what the situation is. And then it's like, we don't really conceptually read body language. Our body senses body language. Oh, yes, it does. Instantly, instantly and in a very holographic way. Yeah, and so that's another instant where if you're with a patient or if you're with an inmate or if you're, you know, with somebody in a difficult situation and they say something to you, you can sense whether that thing is true or whether there's something that they're, they don't know how to say to you because maybe they're afraid to say. Maybe they're afraid even to say it to themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you, and that reticence, you can kind of feel that and you can kind of feel your way into it. And if you feel your way into it with the body and, you, and your body language is like, oh, you know, I really want to be with you. I really want to know what's going on with you. It's not, oh, it's okay, tell me, tell me what's going on. They'll feel it, and then they'll start to open up to you. I know, it's, it's, so it's a body-to-body communication. I just find it really very interesting. And I, I'm just at the very beginning of that. I hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern, 
or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. I would definitely call myself a beginner there too. And, and for me, it circles back to this not knowing and having some comfort with the sensing instead of the knowing and trusting that sensing and trusting that stuff arises out of the sensing. And then later, maybe my mind will make a story about it. Yep. Yep. And it's just, we can prevent so much harm by doing that. It's like, if you think of all the harm that's caused by people thinking the other person can't hear this or can't accept this or, or can't do. And, and so you make these assumptions about what people are, are capable of hearing or experiencing or, or you know, understanding. And then you completely cheat them out of all the things that you could give to them because you've kind of dismissed that as a possibility. And it's we bring, you know, the, the more of these structures that we bring into, and we all do it. I mean, it's just human nature. I mean, the, the brain is this one great, big, gigantic pattern recognition machine. Right. And then we think that's reality. And then we think that's reality, you know, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm curious, you guys have a uh, Zen brain. I think it's a whole week out there, isn't it? Yes, it's one of Upaya's signature programs, Zen brain. It's, um, it's been going on for a number of years now. Roshi has a, a deep interest in neuroscience and been a lot of work in, in that area, in neuroscience, mindfulness. You know, there's a very famous thing about Matthew Ricard, who was a uh, French... I think he I mean, he was a physicist or maybe a molecular biologist. Something like that. He was a scientist type guy. He was a scientist type guy and he gave it up and he became a um a practicing monk in the in the Tibetan tradition. And uh you know, there was a famous picture of him with a bunch of sensors on his head and he said the happiest man on earth as they measured, you know, his brain waves and so anyway, every year there's a number of neuroscientists and philosophers who come to Upaya and you know, what it is that we know about neuroscience and, and, uh, and, uh, and the brain and how meditation affects the brain. And, and it's, it's really an in-depth, uh, cross-disciplinary, ongoing discussion that Roshi's been having, I think, for nearly a decade now. And it's, it's quite fascinating, although I, I have to say I get a lot out of it. Um, I get a lot of, out of every program at Upaya, but some of the Zen brain vocabulary is just above my education levels. Yeah, it's a fascinating program. Can you share with us some, I, I'll just say highlights, some of the things that really touched you in the last session, which I guess was about a month ago or a month and a half ago? Well, one of the things that was really fascinating um, for me was the whole idea of, and they were exploring this, it was the whole idea of context and how we, how context shapes thinking. Okay, so for example? The, the classic question in Zen, where is your mind? So it turns, you could say, you can't you can't locate your mind in the brain. I mean, they've done lots of studies of the brain, and they haven't found the place where the mind lives yet. 
And then if you look at the east-west connection, and, and this started happening in the 50s and 60s, you know, the mind-body connection. And that that's led to, to almost universal practice of yoga in America and the mindfulness movement, which is something else that's on the side we could talk about. Um, but the whole idea that the mind and the both in the brain and in the body, and that goes to a lot of what we've just been talking about, about your body knowing. And then the, the context thing sort of starts to place the mind, the mind, the body, and what's outside of the body. What's the context of the room? Ah, and how the context affects all of this. How the context affects all of this. You know, and it's just fascinating because where, where do things begin and where do they end? I mean, even the question of where does your body end is kind of a fascinating question. How so? Well, typically we would think that the end of my body, for example, would be the skin at the on top of my fingers, right? I would say that's how most of us think about it. Our body ends at uh, you know the outside layer of our skin. Yeah, if I put my hand outside and it's 31 degrees, I will definitely feel the air on my skin. I'll definitely, you know what I mean? I'll, I'll feel, I, can feel, I can feel the wind on my face, for example. So is that not part of my body? Mm. Our ideas of where we are, even the idea of, you know, I was at the airport the other day, right? So you get off the plane and, and people are coming off the plane and this woman throws her arms wide open to greet her mother. I think it was her mother. but And so her body for that moment became all the space around her mother. So from the point of view of modern neuroscience... Our, I'm going to put this in quotes, body doesn't end at our fingertips. I don't know. I, I could not speak from the point of view of modern neuroscience because I just don't have the, I don't have the background to that. My point is, is that it, it, the, the conversation about context was a fascinating conversation. And because one of the things is, is you know, so you look at studies of the brain, you know, there was, for a while there was this real emphasis on where does this activity take place? If somebody's thinking something, what part of the brain lights up? Right. You know? And now the attention is turning away from trying to locate some particular place where something is happening and starting to recognize the neural networks that are activated. So it's, so it's not the place, but it's the connection between. It's the connections. And where are those, how dense are those neural networks? And how are those new networks activated and forged and renewed and created and, and all this? And, you know, it's, it's fascinating stuff. I find this stuff fascinating, too. And when I think, I've heard a term, and, you know, and I might have picked it up on one of the uh, Dharma talks from the, from the Zen Brain program, that neurons that fire together wire together yes and when i think about that when i'm just thinking at a very you know sort of meat level there's these various cells that are actually you know coming together in a way well when that's in our brain that's actually drawing the map of how we see and experience the world all right it's very hard to have a primary experience because we usually run it through these pathways that actually kind of have a groove in them. And so thinking about how we can actually create or experience something beyond the usual wiring, to me, is really, really interesting. 
Well, it's really interesting because one of the things as a practitioner that was most interesting for me that came up during Zen Brain was they were talking about His Holiness the Dalai Lama and how His Holiness the Dalai Lama would get on a like uh, treadmill in the morning to do his exercise. So he's walking on this treadmill and while he's doing that, he's reciting mantras and, and texts. And so he's actually creating new neural pathways through exercise while doing these mantras and texts. And it becomes an embodied learning, which is just fascinating. So maybe we should be a little more careful about what we're putting through our mind when we're on a treadmill? Well, I think we should be a little bit more careful about what we put through our mind all the time. You know, Thich Ha talks about this and, and has been talking about it for years. I have to say, having, having left, you know, the marketplace and spending my days at Upaya and my evenings at Upaya largely, I don't watch television so much uh, at all. I don't have a TV. I don't have access to a TV. I don't watch television at all. And my access to the news is um, I'm getting to be back like my grandfather who found out things about two weeks after they happened. I hear about the plane crash long time after it went down or whatever. And it's very interesting that if you think of the amount of visual images that people watch on television, the, the amount of violence, the amount of deaths, the amount of shooting and how desensitized people get to that. And it's really amazing. It's like, yeah, it's very, we should be very careful of what we put into our minds. So, because that becomes, you know, the fodder for, for how we think, you know. And, and the other thing, too, about that is, is, you know, these are like kinds of like various intoxicants. We do these things to distract ourselves and, and create these pleasure zones or whatever. And then once again, it, it takes us away from the reality of our lives. And I think we need to be mindful of that what we're kind of putting in our brain. And is it, I personally think it's better for you to read a Dharma book or a book on Chinese medicine or, or a book on uh, yoga or, or poetry or whatever than it is to watch Starsky and Hutch or whatever it is, on, that's how old I am. You just dated yourself completely. Whatever's on TV these days. And it's really, the, the, the North American culture is a consumerist culture which commodifies everything and sucks us into being the product, you know? And it's like, and even that is delusion, you know? It's, I used to work in advertising. So you professionally worked with delusion. I professionally worked with delusion. And now I'm not professionally working with my delusion. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, people look at look at television and they think that the TV show is the product. It's like whatever the TV show is, whether it's 60 Minutes or CSI or whatever it is. But in reality, the people are the product. The TV show is merely a mechanism to be able to get X amount of hundreds of thousands of people to sit in one place at one time so that a network can sell that time to an advertiser so that the advertiser has some certifiable way of saying, oh, X million people heard about my soap or my shirt or my shoe or my car or my boat or my gas brand. And they're, the, they're actually the product, but they don't see themselves that way. Well, Facebook works this way, right? It's in as a consumer society, it's it's designed to create consumers. And well, it seems to me that it also plays very much on all these stories that we have of how we're not good enough, or we don't have something and we want to get it. Right? I mean, we're back to basic suffering. This is a this is sort of Buddhism one hundred and one in my very limited understanding that there's suffering. Often there's suffering because there's something we got and we want to get rid of it, 
or there's something we don't have and we want to get it. Regardless of whether it's, you know, which one it is, it lands us in the same place, which is desire. Right. And underneath that, underneath that is, is the fact that we miss the, the actual truth of the situation, which is that everything is impermanent. Now, that gets a little frightening, doesn't it? I mean, for me, that gets frightening when I think about impermanence. The idea that this is, if you've ever fallen in love with anything or anyone, oh, then my life will be perfect, as if your life was going to be this thing that was going to freeze in this moment and be like that forever. Yeah, I've had, I've had plenty of experience with that, actually. <laughs> if this happens, it'll be the worst thing ever, da-da-da-da-da. Either whether, whether it's something you want or whether it's something that you don't want, it's not going to last. No, it never does. It doesn't inherently have any reality unto itself. Causes and conditions arise, these things happen. Causes and conditions fade away, the thing fades away. All of life is like that. All of life is like that. And by, by trying to make these things, which are things that are in motion, processes, it's like Bernie Glassman says, it's all one vast energy field and everything's manifesting inside of it. As to make these things into real lasting objects, that's where our suffering comes from. That's where our, you know, our, we have this ongoing anxiety because we realize that we too have a shelf life. We too are impermanent. We're going to be here and then we're not. And that's just a human condition. If you can actually recognize the reality of impermanence, to see that there isn't any independent thing that exists by itself, that everything is codependent to rising. Suffering comes from trying to freeze that, stop that, make that not happen, to see things as an integrated whole. This sort of touches back on that context thing you were talking about from the Zen brain. Yeah, we're all interdependent. We're all interdependent and, and we're all co-arising moment by moment. And it's the, it goes back to this, you know, idea of, of this false sense of continuity that we have. So we think things are happening, you know, and there's this self that starts at point A and goes to point Z and then disappears, you know, and life's not like that. Life arises moment by moment and fades moment by moment. And when we can actually begin to see that and actually begin to function in that view, then a lot of this stuff that we use to create suffering for ourselves and others begins to loosen its grip on us. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little more about how meditation helps with this? Well, one of the things that I, for me, is that we have this idea that we think things and that those thoughts are us. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. We have this voice in our head that tells us all kinds of things from, oh, I want to go see that new movie about Selma, to I need a new pair of shoes, to I think I will have eggs for breakfast, or whatever it is. And we identify with that voice, and we think that it's ourselves. And then when we start to sit meditation, we start, by the very nature of the process, we start watching our thoughts. So... We're counting our breath, and then we think about breakfast. We go, okay, it's a thought about breakfast, and we let it come and we let it go. And then we'll get hooked on a thought like, oh, i got to do this thing, and we'll think about that, da 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 And then we'll realize that we're not in the Zendo counting our breath anymore. We're off doing imaginary things, and we'll come back and count our breath. And the process of that starts to teach us that we're not our thoughts. 
that and we actually we can influence the kind of thinking that we have but we can't really control our thoughts i've never been able to sit down and say i'm not going to think about what i'm going to have for breakfast for a week you know it's like you said earlier about the elephant so we recognize that our thoughts come and uh, these thoughts come and go and that yes there's a, a cause for these thoughts all of all of our lives, all of the things that have happened to us, our conditioning, where we grew up, our family structure, our education, you know, what we read in the newspaper last week, back to we should be careful about what we put into our mind, the kinds of books we read, all these things create the causes and conditions that lead rise to our thinking. So, but we're not our thinking. Right. Don't believe everything you think. As Roshi always says, don't believe your thoughts. And so as we begin to recognize that our thoughts aren't us, then we create a little gap where we can realize, oh, that's not really happening. If we create that little gap between our reactivity and our actions, we can go, oh, you know, that's just a thought. There's some freedom in that. There's some freedom in there. And in that gap, in that gap, our compassion and our not knowing and our skillful means can arise and we can create a world, at least in that moment, that's coming from a place of openness, coming from a place of, of uh, authenticity, which is kind of a word I don't really like, or maybe intimacy is a better word. Openness, intimacy, not knowing, where the natural thing will just spontaneously, the, the, the good, wholesome thing will spontaneously arise in exactly the same way that when you see the child about to climb up on the stove and grab the hot water, your mind yells out, stop, don't do that. So we can actually, if, we're, if we inhabit that space in between the thoughts, we can actually trust in ourselves, trust in the gap, and trust that, that it's not, uh, okay, so what, what am I trying to say here? Um, I think there, I've been taught a deep distrust for what might be inside of me, mm. right? Inherently evil, born in sin, blah, 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 right? Not to be, you know, the it is not is not to be trusted. I mean, it's just, it's part of the society that I feel like I've grown up in. And to be able to actually trust that tender heart that arises in that space between the thoughts and in the space of not knowing that there's actually a tender heart that is trustworthy is for me it has been huge you know it's relaxing into the base this space of our own basic goodness you know and 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 so that's the the thing about how meditation recognizing that you're not your thoughts is one part of it being able to be in your body and realizing oh i'm getting upregulated i'm getting triggered something is being attuned to yourself something is happening to me yeah something's up alarm bells are going off right where i'm wait whoa whoa and there's nothing wrong with that i mean that's part of our you know that's how we evolved as as a species you know that reactivity has its purpose or had its purposes or whatever but to be able to recognize that oh and not to just make the snap comment or make the snap judgment, but to recognize, oh, you know, I'm getting, I need to breathe, I need to ground. And then to sense into your own body and then to sense into the to people around you, what's actually happening here. And, and, you know, and that's when you begin to see how you can be helpful because you're coming from a place that's not all about you and what you like and what you don't like. And it's coming from a place of, okay, let's just look at what's going on here. 
And to be able to like, once again, it's like karma is all the baggage you carry with you. And Zen is how much of it you can drop at any moment. And maybe you're never going to be able to drop it all. But if you can drop some of it, it's better. And that, that just teaches you to let go. And, you know, my experience has been, I have never let go of anything and not felt relieved. And now I always go, why did I hold on to that for so long? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have experience. You know, why is that so important to me? And, and all of our stuff like that, our various identities and our roles and how, pe- you know, how we think people look at us and how, how we want people to look at us. Yeah, and how we look at ourselves. How we look at ourselves. It's all just crazy. It's all just crazy. But that's the monkey mind. And as we sit, we begin to like the monkey begins to settle down a little bit. And hopefully over time, the monkey's not in charge so much. Well, I, the metaphor that you used a while back here in the conversation, that the mind is like the sky. And it, first of all, the sky is vast, especially out there at Upaya. The sky is deeply vast. Isn't that the truth? Uh, it, it, I don't know what it is. It might be the altitude. but I, Who knows what it is, it's, but it is. And there's stuff that floats in and there's stuff that floats out. But that vastness is actually always there as long as I can settle into it. Sometimes it's just a matter of remembering. Oh, yeah. It's not this little thing right in front of me that's got all my attention. It's way bigger. And that shifts things. It's wide, it's alert, it's luminous, mm. it's big. And, you know, we drop in of, into it and we drop out of it all the time. Sure. Well, I've, I've certainly found that much of the time I've spent on the cushion, it really is like being in the middle of a very busy Asian bus station. <laughs> I mean, it's just noisy and crazy and chaotic as hell. But oddly enough, it's off the cushion kind of doing day-to-day life where sometimes something just falls away. I'm in the middle of a bunch of noise and then it just slides away like the sun comes out from behind a cloud. And this thing that I call I ain't got nothing to do with it. Well, you know, it's also, it's always accessible to you. It's as simple as standing on the ground and feeling your feet, breathing in, breathing out, opening your sense fields and just looking and hearing and tasting and feeling and not not doing anything other than that and for that for that moment right there that's you know it's very interesting because there was a this is one of um, my favorite stories about sid was uh so someone came to the buddha one day and said to the buddha you know I've heard a lot about you guys and I, I'd really like to know what makes you guys so special, you know? And, you know, it's a legitimate question if you think of Buddhist time. There were all these aesthetics and holy people, holy seekers wandering around India doing all these various practices to try to, to sort out what it was. And, and so what was it that made Buddhist people different from all these other people? And Buddha said to him, well, we sit, we stand, we walk, and we lie down. And the guy looked at Buddha and said, well, everybody sits and stands and walks and lies down. So I don't get that. And the Buddha said, that's true. He said, but the difference is, when we sit, we know we're sitting. And when we're standing, we know we're standing. And when we're walking, we know we're walking. 
And when we're lying down, we know we're lying down. And what he meant was, is when we're sitting, we're actually, we're sitting. We're in our bodies and we're sitting. We're not in some memory field from what happened in the past. We're not into some future scenario that will never take place. We're not rehashing our lives or plotting our successes or any of that. We're just sitting. And when that becomes the practice, then it carries over into everything else in life. So that when you're cutting the carrots, you're right there cutting the carrots. And you're not planning the shopping list for next week. And you're not planning what you're going to do after you're cutting the carrots. And you're not planning anything else. You're just in the moment cutting the carrots. And then your life becomes this wholehearted expression of your life. And it's not fragmented, and it's not separate, and it's not crazy, and you're not being running around chasing the monkey in your mind. Yeah, you're not thinking your way through it. You're not thinking your way through it. You can't think your way into Zen, and you can't think your way out of it. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. And that's probably a good place to actually wind this down. Well, Michael, thank you so much. I so enjoy talking with you. I enjoy it as well. Always have. And I just, I want to remind our listeners here, Genzon is out at the Upaya Zen Center. And if you're interested in finding out either more about Zen or listening in to some of the amazing programs that they've had and some of the amazing speakers that they've had, and, and they've there's just a real treasury there in their Dharma talks. So you can go to you. What is it? Uh, Upaya.org? Is that where yeah. they'd go? You can yeah. go to Upaya.org, and there are literally thousands of Dharma talks up there. You can find out about Zen Brain, and you can find out about Being with Dying. Upaya is, is a really unique Zen center in America in that it is a huge tent upon which under which many teachers from many lineages come. Sonoki Rinpoche, Kasuaku Tanahashi, Sharon Salzberg, John Dunn, of course, Roshi Joan Halifax herself, the Norman Fisher. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, it's a, it's a real treasure. I realize it's not possible for everybody to come to Upaya, but it is possible for everybody to hear the teachings from Upaya on the, on the, on the podcast. And I think that if, if you go there, you'll be amazed at the library of teachings and, and the things that are available to you. So I would strongly encourage you to do that. And if you have the opportunity to come to a retreat, yeah, it's an, it's an amazing place. And I hear the food is pretty good. The food is pretty good. The mattresses are not so great, but um, the teachings are remarkable. And it is a really, truly unique Dharma center anywhere in the world. And, you know, Roshi, as she always says, is our chief missionary and she travels all around the world. And and I've had uh, the pleasure of traveling with her to many places. And I've had I've had the pleasure of sitting in many places in America. And I have to say that Upaya is a really, really unique and wonderful resort. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week. 